0: Hi everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Sabin Millennial Podcast, a community dedicated to ambitious and amazing millennials. And today with us, we have Fatima Zaidi. She's a CEO and co-founder of Quill Inc. It's the world's first one-stop marketplace and agency where podcasters and brands can find pre-vetted experts who will save them time, improve their podcast quality, and help grow their audience. She's also the owner of the Listening Conference held in LA. It supports brands moving into podcasting. Fatima is a speaker, commentator on BNN Bloomberg, and a contributor to the Globe and Mail and Huffington Post. She's been awarded Top 30 Under 30 Award, Young Professional of the Year, and Top 100 Women Award. During this episode, she will share her tips for success and will speak in depth about the opportunities and challenges they faced with Quill during this pandemic and how they've been able to build a successful company within just seven months. She will also share her personal tips for success and balance, routine, and how she's able to do it all with such a packed schedule. And with that, let's jump right into the show. Thank you for coming on here and being with me first of all. Second of all, why
1: don't you tell a little bit more about yourself to all the listeners who might not know
0: who Fatima is?
2: Well, first off, Maria, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And also, I'm just really excited to hear the final episode. I know that you've, you've put out some really great content, so excited to be a part of it. For those of you who are listening, I am Fatima Zadie. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Quill, which is uh, the world's first marketplace for podcasters, and we also work with brands to create their own shows as well. We uh, own the Listen-In Conference, which is uh, the world's first enterprise podcasting event, which happens in LA every year. So that is a very high-level, I would say, corporate bio description of what we do. And then I always like to preface that by adding a couple of fun facts, like I eat Skittles and even numbers, and I was on a panel with Beyonce's dad. I love it. Why Skittles in even numbers? I don't know if it's like a psychological thing, but I just find that one isn't enough flavor. So I like to combine it with two. I actually recently found out that Skittles um, all taste the same. Someone actually tweeted at me saying, hey, saw this in one of your bios and just wanted to let you know that Skittles actually all taste the same. So you probably don't have to eat them in even numbers. My mind was blown.
1: But I thought they have different flavors and the same as M&M's. I thought the black ones are healthier because, you know, the natural color. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> oh, I, I like the fun fact. Okay, so I guess the question would be, what led you into this world? Because I know you're a marketer, you're a salesperson, you have so much under your belt in terms of
0: accomplishments. How did you get to podcasting?
2: Well, I was running an agency in a former life. I would say for a few years, which we ended up selling. But one of the biggest requests I started seeing in the last couple of years was brands moving aggressively into the podcasting space. And so, I just, as like a marketer and a salesperson, I'm constantly looking at ways to increase ROI for clients. And I think I have a huge problem with the way traditional marketing is done because I find that the conversion rates are one to 2% and you're like mass targeting people through performance marketing and you don't necessarily know if you're reaching the right people, how you're reaching them, and if they're even converting into accurate customers. And so the numbers one to 2% seemed really low for me. And I find podcasting to be a really interesting medium as a consumer. I listen to 10 shows a week and... You know, you essentially become an influencer as a podcast host. People who listen to your show develop an emotional connection with you, especially if you're a brand, because how many companies do we, you know, McDonald's, Amazon, Slack, we use their products and services, but we don't have an emotional connection to the brand until we listen to the podcast and listen to their story. And there was in particular one study that was done by Midworld, where they found, uh, they interviewed, I think, hundreds of thousands of people who are like podcast consumers, people like myself. And 61% of those people said that they purchased a product or service after listening to a Podcast. So I look, took that stat and I was like, well, traditional advertising converts at one to 2%. Why aren't more brands starting podcasts as a form of marketing? And when I came to this realization, was when the industry was sort of on an exponential growth, further compounded by the pandemic, which is why I decided to start Quill,
1: well. which is the marketplace for podcasters, which is awesome in a sense where. I think similar services can be found on Upwork and Fiverr. I guess if you want to start a podcast, if you want to create something, but it's very interesting how you took a specific niche, separated it, and it is just for one purpose, one goal. How is it going so far? And uh, what are the challenges with building a marketplace that you definitely see?
2: So we actually have two business models. We have an agency where we create branded shows for our clients that you know have budgets and. We wanted to be very mindful that not everybody has brand budgets, and you know they still deserve to start a really great show and stare their stories. So that's why we have the marketplace. You hit the nail on the head. It's very similar to Fiverr and Upwork, but very, very specific to podcasting. Not anyone can be a freelancer on our platform. For starters, it's North American freelancers only for quality control. So, like an Upwork and Fiverr, you can get price bid with people in India and China. who can do it for a fraction of the cost. Secondly. We have an application process. We vet um, case studies, work experience, benchmark pricing. And so anyone who goes to our platform is reaching a very curated list of people. Um, So you don't have to actually funnel through quality control. You just need to know what service you're looking for and what price range you're looking for. And then it pulls up. We match you. We also offer a 30-minute consultation where we match you with a freelancer based on your needs and your budget. How is it going? Really well. We launched just before COVID in January um, and we just acquired an agency. So it's going really well. I, you know, I'm very grateful that we were so well positioned as a tech and digital company that could sort of thrive from wherever. And I really do feel for a lot of the, you know, retail small business owners that are struggling during a really difficult time.
1: So going into, I was just going to ask about acquiring Origins, right? Origins Media House. In terms of building a marketplace. So there's a lot of uh, people who are out there trying to build a tech platform and it's a chicken and an egg problem a lot of the time, right? You have users and you have service providers, you have to match them. Who do you get first? So what is your strategy and advice for all those people who are trying to figure out the formula?
2: So building a marketplace is extremely challenging if you've like never done it before, which we hadn't. I think it's so interesting because not only do you have the supply and demand side, you have to manage both the supply and demand side. And because you're only getting a a fraction of the overall gross revenue, like we take a 20% transaction cut, which is comparable to all other marketplaces, you, you you really are banking on a lot of volume and scale in order to actually get to a place where your product is scalable. And so we've been really lucky in the sense that our supply side, which would be our freelancers, We haven't had to do any outreach for that. It's all been word of mouth, which is it really, I think speaks to the intimacy of like this community. Like it is a very, very new category still when you compare it to blogs and websites and YouTube and other forms of marketing content outlets. Podcasting is a very new medium and the industry is very tight knit and very close. And so We started with like maybe 50 freelancers and then it just sort of became viral from a word of mouth standpoint where every podcaster who was looking to monetize on their show and wanted to do their show full time, but also had these skill sets and services they could provide could not only be a customer on our platform, but they could also be a supplier like a freelancer. So that side of our business, we didn't have to worry about too much. The demand side is still something that we're working on every day. And it's a combination of a lot of content marketing, obviously to build SEO, growth marketing, performance marketing, ads, PR, like everything under the umbrella of building building your ground visibility.
1: Amazing. So I'm glad you mentioned this because there's a lot of people who are trying to start a new business, pivot in 2020 to 2021, figure out how to scale it online. With Instagram, as you know, it's it's... Barely possible now with new algorithms, but there's still a way. Have you found the way to scale your brand quickly? And what could be some of those secret sauces that you found?
2: Well, having the conference was a really big one for us because we gave us the opportunity to the own, own the distribution. So we got really creative. And obviously, a conference is a lot of work, but it provides you with not just brand visibility, but you get to own the distribution and content of your platform. The other thing that we launched, which we noticed there was a huge gap in the market for, was Quail Reviews, which is essentially the rotten tomatoes of podcasting. And we launched that because we're like, where do people go if they want to start, watch a really good show and they're not sure what the reviews and the ratings are? There's another company that's also doing something similar, like the IMDb of podcasts called Podchaser. And we sort of backlink to each other's reviews because... You know, we're essentially doing the same thing. And that part of our business is not something that we're monetizing on. It's all crowdsourced reviews, but it's allowed us to keep very engaged with our community as well as provide a lot of traffic to our website. So people who are Googling, which podcast should I start listening to? Or what are the reviews for Serial? Or how I built this? Or, you know, which podcast should I start in the murder mystery genre? Like our reviews will come up and that's helped to drive a lot of traffic. So if you are thinking about starting a marketplace A few things that I would say that you should keep top of mind are you really want to make sure that you're balancing your supply and demand so that, you know, you're only adding more freelancers to the platform or more supply to your platform once you've met the demand. I think a lot of people make the mistake of inundating the platform with a ton of supply and then they only have like a few customers trickling in, which can cause a lot of retention on the supply or turnover on the supply side. And then the other thing I would say is really, really get creative with how you can stand out for brand visibility outside of, you know, PR, content marketing, all those things are the bare minimum. Like everyone should be doing those marketing tactics in the 21st century, like do you want to start a podcast? Do you want to have a conference? Do you want to, you know, what we did with pill Reviews? Like, where is there a niche that you can step into um, that might not be something you're monetizing on, but can drive traffic to your website?
1: Love it. So where would you put your marketing dollars most of all right now, if you were starting a business from scratch?
2: Um, I would say the technical side of things for sure. It's interesting. We built our marketplace on a platform called Bubble. And Bubble is a really interesting platform because there's no code required. So it's essentially the equivalent of ShareTribe where you don't have to spend a hundred thousand to half a million dollars on a custom build. You can build something very quick, get it to MVP for proof of concept. And if you prove that traction and sales, then you invest the money into doing custom build. So, That is something that I would 100% recommend to people who want to build a product. It doesn't have to be a marketplace, across the board, anything that you're building, why would you build or spend half a million dollars on a custom build or hire a CTO or a developer when you have no idea how the market is gonna respond to your product? So why not spend $10,000, which is what we spend, build something very scrappy, very lean, get it to MVP, And then when you can prove the sales cycle and that there's a demand for the product, then you actually invest your money in doing a custom build.
1: I love that you shared the number because that was my next question. Cause everybody kind of says that, you know, you can do it scrappy and cheap and cheerful, but nobody really knows what that number is. So how do you know when your website scales and you got to pick up your pace and redo it or invest more money?
2: We are now at a point where we're breaking even on our costs. So now we are thinking about doing a custom build. That's the formula that we use. We're like, okay, if we can get to a point where we're Breaking even, and we are spending a lot of money on the platform, so that is a pretty high gross volume for us. So now we're at a point where we're breaking even on the marketplace side of things. We also have the service side that's very financially lucrative that we funnel to support our product side of the business. But I would say, if you can at least break even with your costs, then you can probably, at least to an investor, justify why you want to raise capital, or if you have the funds to actually justify putting, you know. $80,000 to $100,000 into actually developing a product from scratch. The other thing I would say is if you are at a point where you're not looking to raise capital and you have no money yourself to invest in a custom build, think about offshoring as well. I mean, I love to support local and we actually work with an agency out in California, but if you don't, not everybody has the funds to invest. Not everyone has a service side to their business where they can fund the product side. So if you're really, really starting from scratch and have no investment, think about hiring a development team in Poland or Serbia or somewhere in like you know eastern europe for example where you're probably paying a tenth of what you would be paying here but the service can also be amazing
1: and i've heard from a lot of people in tech space in podcasting space that's what I, exactly what they do um, it just works when you're trying to bootstrap a lot of the things that you're doing and exactly. just make sense sometimes so totally agree with that Now, how long did it take you to get from the scrappy idea to where you are now, break even, really going to scale the product and the service that you were doing? What was the time frame?
2: We have been working on this product since... Um, I would say late 2018, early 2019, we launched the product January 2020. So just like seven months ago. So we, yeah, seven months ago, we went to market with this marketplace. And so seven months later, we launched the agency, we broke even on our marketplace, we acquired an agency and we're 100% bootstrapped. So it took us seven months.
1: Okay, which is amazing. Congrats. Not And that's did. seven
2: COVID months as well.
1: Correct. I was just going to say, do you think that was a hindrance or it was an opportunity that COVID was here for you guys?
2: It was a bit of both. I think we definitely are very well positioned in terms of like being a tech company. Podcasting is further being compounded by the pandemic with brands having to reallocate their marketing dollars because events and a lot of other tactics are on hold. So that side of the business, it definitely helped. But We also were impacted in a big way because we had to move our LA conference that was supposed to be on June 24th. So I had to refund, you know, all of our tickets, we had 2000 people attending. And so that was a huge sum of our first year revenue that we had to sort of repivot and reimagine what that would look like. And then we also lost a lot of contracts that were brands who were you know, wanting to work with us, but now couldn't because they've been so significantly impacted by COVID. So I unfortunately don't really have pre-COVID data sets to provide. Like I, if we were operational last year, I could be like, well, this is how we did in year one. And then after COVID, this is how we were impacted. But because we launched at COVID, we have no idea how we've been impacted financially, which may be a good thing.
1: I mean, I think you've done pretty well considering seven months in, you are doing fantastic. Now, what do you you. think are the main success tips that really worked for you guys in the first couple months? Because, you know, was it hiring the right people? Was it getting a team? Was it reaching out to certain people for your marketplace? What were those secrets?
2: I think it was when we realized how badly we were initially impacted. There was actually a period where we were gonna raise capital and we were all the way at term sheets with an investor. And then he pulled out because of COVID and we basically had a month of runway left. And so this is just, I would say, in the middle of February, end of February when COVID was just starting to pop up and like we were just going into lockdown mode. And I think the thing that really helped us was we sort of approached it very methodically. Like, okay, we know we have to push our conference, We know the marketplace is going to take time and capital to scale. What can we do in the interim to keep ourselves afloat? And launching the agency model was a huge blessing because not only did it allow us to become very profitable, cash flow positive from day one, the biggest thing that I didn't realize that would come from the agency side is that is where we're learning the most. That is where we're understanding the pain points of the industry. We're in the trenches with podcasters, creating shows every day, marketing those shows. And that's where we've been able to figure out where there's a huge gap. So now we've started building other internal products in partnership with various vendors. Spotify is one of them, where we're now looking at other tech products that we can build to sort of move along the medium And in the industry, but that would have never happened if we hadn't thought about launching a service side and being in the trenches with our customer. And that is, I think, a mistake that a lot of early stage founders make. They build the pet tech side without actually being in the trenches with their customer and focusing on market research and learning. And sometimes I find the best in the businesses are the service side that may not be scalable, but then they learn and then they build products based off of what they learn on the service side.
1: How many clients did you learn with on the agency side when you started? Was there a magic number?
2: Still learning, I mean, we're still operational agency. It's still a core focus of our business. And right now we have about um, 60 brands that we're working with.
1: And then how did you find them? Cold calling, emailing, shaking hands, what was the process?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, fortunately my background is agency sales. So a lot of these clients I had already worked with in a former life when I was running the agency. So some of them through my own network, some of them through cold calling and cold outreach. We got a ton of press and PR coverage. So that's been really helpful for us. We acquired an agency, so we got to acquire their clients. Um, And just, I think for me, really becoming a thought leader and subject matter expert in this industry. Like for me, I'm not necessarily looking to monetize on, everything. Like we do free webinars. We do free consultations. We match people on the platform who don't have budgets. And for us, it's just, we want to be known as like the go-to people for podcasting. We don't care if you don't necessarily have budget. Like if you want to start a show and you have a hundred dollars in your pocket to invest, great. We want to get on a call with you and help you as well. So I think just creating really good content and trying to add as much value to our community as much as possible. That's helped drive a lot of inbound sales because now anytime someone wants to start a podcast, they're like, Oh, you should talk to Fatima or you should talk to the team at Quill or talk to the owners of the listening conference. So just, I would say it's been very organic. I love it. So I guess
1: how it works is if I have a brand or a company, I come to you and I say, Hey, I'm thinking to start podcasts now. Maybe I have an idea. Maybe I don't know
2: what I want to talk about. Would you help me with that as well? Absolutely. Yeah, we're responsible for concepting and sort of coming up with an idea and bringing it all the way to life.
1: Love it. So for the people who are thinking maybe potentially, how should they narrow down the focus? Or are there any trends that you see in the industry that are really picking up or niches that should be really explored that nobody's tapping into
2: yet? That's a really great question. I think right off the bat, like so many people I talk to who want to start podcasts, I pick very broad and general themes. And my whole argument there is if you want to become an expert on business, you're competing with like the Guy Razzes and the, you know, Reply Alls of the world. If you want to become an expert in Home Ec, you're competing with the Martha Stewart's of the world. So what space can you step into to make a difference? The other thing that I also want to address is, and I get asked this question all the time, Is podcasting super saturated and I would say that we have 1.5 million podcasts 18% of those podcasts are active so actually people are releasing regular episodes now if we compare that to other forms of content there's 30 million YouTube channels there's 300 million blogs there's 500 hours of content being uploaded every minute and there's 1.5 billion websites so when we're comparing 200,000 active podcasts, like it's definitely not a saturated community. We're still at the beginning of the hype cycle. So you could probably afford to go abroad today as long as you're creating really good content and have a unique selling proposition. But as this medium evolves and it's growing really quickly, I would say really encourage people to start thinking about a niche that they can step into. And when you do start to think about topics, do your research, peruse through iTunes, see what other shows are in the same genre and category. In terms of show titles, you want to make sure that you don't have a show title that is comparable to another podcast. Uh, A resource that I use for that is Google's Keyword Planner. So I try to, you know, type in a show title and then I look to see how it's trending in search volume. So ideally you want it to be high and how it's trending competition and you want that to be low um so those are a few metrics that i look at when i'm like working with our clients
1: see I, I like that because that's one thing i i didn't do as well when i started the Savvy millennial uh the savvy apparently not a lot of people know what savvy meant so that was my <laughs> first problem and there's a few people with similar names or similar associations so that was obviously some challenges to overcome
2: Highly recommend. I really like the title of your name. I was looking at it earlier and I was like, the Savvy Millennial just seems so appropriate for what you're doing because target demographics for podcasts are educated, affluent, millennial professionals. So you couldn't be more bang on from like an audience standpoint.
1: (laughs) Yay. Thank you. (laughs) Love it. At least one validation point. So I'm, (laughs) I'm happy with that. Okay. So for people who are trying to figure out what to do with their life, trying to figure out the niche, Are there any ways or concepts that you would recommend to search out, to figure out what your passion is, what you can be good at, so you can kind of nail it down right away versus trying to figure out as you go?
2: It's interesting because you spend a lot of time creating a podcast. It's definitely not an overnight process. Like, across the board, unanimously, everyone would agree it's a lot of work, and so... If you're going to spend all of this time doing something to further your personal brand, you want to make sure that it's a topic that you enjoy and are passionate about. And secondly, you want to make sure that it aligns with your skill set. So if you don't like hosting and you don't like speaking and you don't like interviewing and, you know, all of the above public speaking, then don't start a podcast. And that is my recommendation across the board, like match it with your skill set, and make sure that you really enjoy the topic. And then outside of that, find your unique selling proposition.
1: I like it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so we'll take a little bit of a pivot into you personally. So you have marketing, sales background, you're a tech founder, a startup founder, you are a speaker, a motivator. How do you balance everything that you do in your life?
2: So balance for me, is balance over time and so it's funny i find that being busy you know they're saying if you want to get something done give it to a busy person i, I wholeheartedly believe that and and my days often look pretty crazy but despite the craziness of my schedule and how many different things i'm juggling and balancing I find that the reason I'm so busy is because being a well-rounded person is extremely important to me. And so it's not just about running Quill and listen in, but it's about, you know, being there for my family, my friends, my partner, my cat, being active and working out and being healthy, you know, being mindful, journaling, meditating, all of those things are so important, which is Why I think my schedule is just so crazy because for me, it's not just about work, it's about being extremely mindful, and work life balance is so important. My family always makes so much fun of me because I go to bed at like nine o'clock and I like wake up at seven and I like need my like 10 hours of sleep. But I'm pretty unapologetic about that because for me, again, balance is balance over time. So if there's weeks that I'm working crazy hours because I have so many things going on, I try to make sure that over time I'm compensating by. Also finding balance and you know, not just working 24-7, giving back and, you know, giving back from a community standpoint as well as just um, working on things outside of work because I don't want work to be my legacy and I don't want work to be sort of on my tombstone as the only thing I focused and prioritized in this long life.
1: I totally get it. So do you time batch it? How do you separate work from personal life? Are you that person who is on a family dinner at Thanksgiving? You're on your phone trying to figure things out and call the US because it's not Thanksgiving there.
2: I would say that I try to be present when I'm at a family dinner or otherwise in social plans. Of course, when you're running a company, you don't always have that flexibility. So I would be lying if I said I didn't work through vacation at times and there weren't those occasional family dinners where I like had to run out and take a call. But I, I think I've been pretty great about creating a culture where balance is extremely important for myself as well as my team. So I'm pretty particular about the fact that we work nine to five. We don't work evenings and weekends. We can take Unlimited vacation. I think the concept of only getting allocated two weeks for vacation—like, what if you're burnt out? I don't want you showing up to the office. So we're a very millennial, progressive team in the way that we do things. Like, I have only hired high-performing rock stars. We work hard, we play hard, and you're right. Like my days are very scheduled. Like I start working at seven thirty-ish, and I work probably you know every half an hour increments. Everything is scheduled until like 7.30 p.m. But then when I'm disconnecting, I'm disconnecting.
1: I like it. I like it. So then in terms of your routine, I guess, do you have one in the morning? Like you wake up, you meditate, or you just straight into work, first thing on your phone? Like, is there a certain magic formula there?
2: My routine is that I I start and I like probably shouldn't admit this, but full transparency, I like start working as soon as I wake up. So I literally will be in bed responding to emails like for the first 45 minutes of my day. And then like my partner will bring me my coffee, my cat will snuggle up with me. And then I probably like sit at the laptop at like 8 or 830 I'm sitting there until like 7 or 7.30 in between. If my partner doesn't bring me meals, like I probably won't eat or remember to eat. But then at 7.30 when I disconnect, that's my time to have dinner with the family. I like allocate 20 minutes for meditation and and then another 20 minutes for journaling. And then in the day during my lunch break, I always make sure that I'm taking an hour to work out. So again, like I'm very scheduled and I also schedule things like mindfulness, working out, like taking a shower. But I think being that organized for someone who's high functioning is extremely important. And I think that unfortunately, because of a lot of like icons, who I won't name right now, but people have promoted that hustle 24 seven mentality. So small businesses and early stage founders think that they need to be working 24-7 and can't work towards work-life balance. And that is like not my mantra at all.
1: I totally agree with you. And that's one of the reasons I started the podcast because I've seen a lot of younger entrepreneurs believing into the idea of, you know, you work 24-7, you wake up super early, you go to bed late, you sacrifice everything that's out there because you're hustling your 20s mm-hmm. you're hustling the your 30s so you can reap the benefits in your 40s and that's just not always the case because there's a lot of successful founders just like you who are able to balance and manage it all
2: yeah and i would argue that we probably manage it better because we aren't burnt out we aren't disengaged we aren't resentful we aren't you know struggling just to keep the lights on and so when you have clarity of mind and when you have clarity of overall like health I find that you perform much better as a CEO and someone who has very aggressive targets. So for me, showing up to work tired is the equivalent of showing up to work drunk. Like it's, don't do it. Like if you're tired and you take time off, do it.
1: It totally makes sense. Now, do you ever feel guilty for taking time off? Or for example, you're having an off day and you wake up and you just don't feel like working, or sometimes your days are just going sideways, I don't know, your car broke down, you spent three hours waiting, your laptop is ready to just throw down. Just anything is and everything is going wrong and you feel like wasting a day. Do you ever
0: have those days? How do you deal with them? And do you ever feel guilty for wasting time?
2: Yeah so that's a good one. I do feel guilty for wasting time but I think I would be lying if I wasn't just like everybody else where I spent a little too long scrolling through Instagram and spending 2 hours last night watching the bachelorette and you know everybody has those guilty pleasures and I I don't think of it as necessarily wasting time as low performing tasks that sort of sort of re-energize you in a way, like it definitely is a waste of time to watch two hours of, you know, The Bachelorette. But those two hours, I'm disconnecting from work and giving my mind a break. So I think it's completely normal to have days where you just don't want to show up to work. And whether or not you have the bandwidth to be able to do that, is obviously so contingent on every startup and every company. I am now at a point now where I have a team around me where I could do that if I wanted to. I also love working. So that's the other thing. Like very rarely unless there's some sort of a personal emergency do I like not want to show up to work at all because I actually love what I do. So I think that's also important. I don't live to work. I, I work to live.
1: Oh I love it. That's that's one of my favorite quotes. So I guess at which point do you realize that your business, your personal life is getting so congested with stuff that you've got to outsource? And do you outsource things? What things do we, would you recommend people to outsource? When do you hire that next person for your team? What's your strategy?
2: So I don't have an EA and I've been asked by so many people how I've been able to manage without one. And there's something for everyone. And I, I think it does make a lot of sense, but I get like hundreds and hundreds of emails a day. And there's something I really like about responding to emails. And I want to be on the receiving end of it. I want to be the one responding back to people who are reaching out to me. And I don't know if that's like a control issue, but like, I wouldn't never want to outsource responsibilities like that. That being said, I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not good at. And so I've definitely strategically hired people around me who fill a very complimentary set to mine. And, you know, I'm great at, revenue and making money and keeping the lights on and sales. I'm not great at, you know, client service necessarily or production or operations. And that is something that I have hired in very key specific areas of our business. And it's less for me about outsourcing and more so putting a team around you that have very complimentary skill sets.
1: I like it. So then how many people do you have on your team right now, if you would have to take a bird's eye view?
2: For full-time and contract, we're about 10 people now. So we're still small and scrappy. We were only three before we acquired the agency.
1: How do you make sure that with a small team, small and scrappy, you maintain the culture when you hire and you hire people for, you know, as you said, rock stars. Every person you hire is a rock star. How do you pick them out of, I'm sure you get a bunch of different uh, applications. How do you pick the right ones?
2: Okay, this is probably the hardest part of my job. I would say that building a culture remotely, hiring the right people, keeping everyone engaged and motivated, and measuring performance is the part of my job I probably like least. For so long, I've been an individual contributor working on sales, and I love that, but... I would say scaling a company remotely through COVID has been the hardest part of my job. And I don't have an answer for you because I'm still figuring it out. You know, yesterday we had a two-hour planning session with our team on Zoom where we talked about our vision, our mission, our values, got aligned set our team okrs and like kpis for the year both as a team and individually so that when performance reviews happen in may everybody knows what part of the business they should have been owning and we set these goals together so that there's no you know miscommunication or misalignment everyone does it together as a team and i'm not one for you know subordinate performance reviews like i hate the concept of going in and having someone tell you oh this is how i think you did and this is how much money i think you should get based like It just doesn't make any sense to me. And so it's a very millennial way of doing things, but how do you build culture and sort of keep engagement high? And we've hired all of these people and acquired the agency through COVID. We haven't seen anyone. And so... Part of it has been, I've been really lucky because some of the people that I've hired, I've already worked with in my former agency, in a former life as partnerships, but some people I've still never met. And I'm still trying to figure out how to keep the lights on from an engagement standpoint. So if you have any tips for me, I'm all ears.
1: I'm um, actually, I'm just thinking, because I had Eric on the on the podcast a few weeks ago. And so what he was talking about is thinking about, you know, every Monday morning, talking to the team and asking three questions, what things we should keep doing, what things we should stop doing and what things we should start doing. And so those are the three things that if you ask your team every morning, so I try to implement that on, on my side. Hey, sorry, can, can you repeat those? Cause I'm literally writing them down. What things we should keep doing, what things we should start doing and what things should be stopped doing. And you can put them in different obviously
2: (laughs) and he asks them every
1: day he says like you know for the team ask it every week for example on your monday or friday sales team meeting or general team meeting and just let everyone speak their mind and then see what the ideas are because sometimes you might not have the full view that's one way to make sure that everyone feels heard everyone obviously is involved and then maybe there's some crazy ideas that can pop up and you're like shit how is that
2: possible? I love this. I love, love, love this. This is so helpful. And I've just written it down and I'm actually going to bring this up in our staff meeting.
1: Perfect. I'm glad to be helpful.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very helpful. I like it. Okay. So I guess
1: on another note, Zoom leadership is important. How do you maintain personal connection in an online world, fully online world, without
2: meeting new people, seeing new people, shaking hands? What's the tip? It's interesting because I always say that like I've built my entire personal brand one handshake at a time and I generally find that offline tactics have the power of forming stronger relationships, um, but now we live in a world where obviously that isn't possible and I think taking the time to also just be super grateful that we live in a time period where we can be connected virtually. I mean. Imagine COVID had happened, and I'm sure things like COVID had happened, you know, 50 to 100 years ago where you didn't have the tools and resources to be connected, so connected virtually and globally. And so I've just been really mindful of doing check-ins virtually on Zoom, as well as really checking in on people in your community who like live alone and and don't necessarily have the support groups. It's a difficult time for everyone. I think everyone's really struggling. And I think platforms, virtual platforms like Google Meets and Zoom and Microsoft Teams have just been sort of a catalyst to help us stay connected, but nothing better than, you know, the offline tactics of forming stronger relationships. So if you do have the bandwidth, check on your neighbors, go for that walk with your girlfriend, you know, take your dog for a walk. You can still do it while maintaining social distancing.
1: I like it. So, and then for your conference, for example, that's coming in March, 2021, Mm -hmm. let's say COVID is here to stay. Unfortunately, what would you guys do? What would be the steps? Virtual conference or would you delay?
2: We're going to have to delay it. We've been very intentional about not wanting to do virtual conference. We think virtual events are great, but we are all about building organic offline relationships and so we actually just talked about this as a team and given the state of california march is not looking like it's going to be feasible so we are probably going to push it to the end of 2021 maybe even early 2020 when the vaccine is readily available got
1: it well i'm sorry that's very unfortunate but we're
2: all in this together so
1: that that's kind of the idea. And it's just gonna be better because everybody was just gonna be so tired of online communication and virtual events that you'll you'll sell out just like this.
2: I know everyone's gonna be so excited, I think, to be I mean, I can't wait to start my events again. I also own a woman in tech event and that happens at Soho House every every month. And I just I miss our community. I miss just you know, the small, simple pleasures I saw a meme the other day, which, which was, I can't wait to walk down the aisle and hear those magical words. This is your captain speaking. <laughs> I love it. Uh, speaking about going down the aisle, I got engaged during this
1: COVID. So. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. There Thank you me. go. Something good happened. Which is, I I mean, COVID, I, I know it's it, it's this weird situation where if COVID's been kind of good to you, you don't want to admit it. And I, I, I see a lot of people just kind of saying.
2: Where are you based out of right now? Toronto. Okay. Can I actually see the ring? It looks so beautiful. Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. It's, it's
2: gorgeous. It's, he did well or she did
1: well. It's it's a he and I am a lucky gal, but it's, you know, we, we also got the COVID puppy without knowing COVID ah. is going to happen. We just <laughs> picked him up and then the next week COVID started and everything went in Amazing. So
2: everything what, happens
1: for a reason. That's what I keep believing. And, you know, COVID it did definitely present a lot of opportunities and obviously a lot of challenges and struggles, but like I was able to really refine my network, really check in with a lot of people, as you said, you know, who are by themselves and spend more time
2: and Mm -hmm. family,
1: like COVID forced me to not travel, to not go anywhere not spend time at events, but like focus on the family ties, which I think was very important.
2: Definitely. Yeah. I think you've really hit the nail on the head. It's really forced us to prioritize people that were, you know, really close to you that are in our bubble. And if anything, you know, the adoption rate for pets has skyrocketed. I actually got a COVID cat. So um, my cat, Charlie, he's amazing. I wish he was like roaming around somewhere so I could uh, introduce you, but he is probably taking a nap somewhere. Like a proper cat should. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love it. You see, so COVID has been good. Okay. So with your partner, what are your secrets on making sure that you don't kill each other
2: during COVID? We have a really good system because I live in a three bedroom condo. Yeah. And it's my sister my partner and myself. So there's three separate bedrooms. So unlike most couples that have to share a room and a bathroom, I think the secret to any successful relationship is separate rooms and separate bathrooms. Of course, like people can share rooms and sleep together, but you need to have your own space. As you can see, this is like a part of my office. And I generally just find that, you know, he actually moved in in July. And so very recently, like through the pandemic and there hasn't been a transition period for us. Like it hasn't felt like we're down each other's throats or next. In fact, if anything, it's just made me so grateful for my setup because I have my partner, my cat and my sister all under one roof. And then there's, I know there's people who live alone who haven't seen people for weeks. So I am not complaining about him or anyone uh, during this period. And I'm grateful for my setup. I like how you
1: said gratitude is the thing because uh, we ended up in the beginning of COVID. We were the couple that lived in a one-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment during... Oh, wow. ...in That's Toronto. Testing. And it was... You know what? We had a beautiful view of the lake, but because we're always at the office or always out, we would you know not spend as much time. When COVID hit, <laughs> we had to rock, paper, scissors on who was working... On the patio furniture, and who is working in the kitchen? Like, it was pretty testy. So, that's hence the proposal. I guess we prove that, you know, it could work. I also don't have a secret. I think gratitude is the answer
2: for majority Definitely. of these things. It could always be worse, it could also always be better, but <laughs> get like that focus on the factors that you can control, not the ones you can.
1: That is absolutely true. I like that. I love that. So for you as a person an expert in tech and podcasts, how do you choose the podcast resources books to consume? Because your time is obviously limited. So those 10
2: shows per week that you consume... Every day, ta- every week, the shows keep changing. So I have an ever-evolving list. A couple of tools that I really utilize to find new shows or new podcasts. I We Quill Reviews, obviously. We do a ton of crowdsourced reviews on which podcasts people should be listening to. And then another one that I tap into a lot is Podchaser to look up like which Are the top rated shows which potentially shows um have gotten really good reviews or that i might resonate with podcasts also have trailers like netflix shows and movies so you can always listen to a 30 second trailer to figure out whether or not something resonates with you um and then in terms of books um and other resources I'm really big on self help. So, like, I have a therapist. I read a lot of self help books. And I would say a lot of my recommendations if you're a Canadian, then I do a lot of Heather's Picks um, from Chapters Indigo. If you're in the US, I like also focus a lot on like Oprah's, what's in Oprah's book club. So, I'm really big on reviews and referrals. I actually have a podcast club as well where we get together and chat about which podcasts we're listening to, which ones we recommend. And so, yeah, I would say those are um, probably the biggest platforms that I use for self-discovery. I'm also really big on journaling. Please mind my cat's hair that's all over this. But my sister actually published the Human Being Journal, and this is a journal that I fill out monthly, and it helps me reflect on my goals. And so every month, I like actually go into. Focus on which tactics I'm, which burners are doing really well. So, physical fitness is one, mind, mind is another, where, like, you know, you ever evolve your skill set, passion, relationships, friendships. Um, there's just so many different burners, and I try to make sure that all of my burners are balanced or versus mine. Wait, so this is a human being journal and where yeah. do I get it? Yeah, actually I'm like one of the first people who've started using it because they're going to stores in the next month but it will be available at Chapters Indigo. It's going to be available on their website which is Mahara Mindfulness. Yeah, I'll make sure to circle back with you when it's like actually available for purchase but it'll be on Amazon. It's going to be everywhere. Like all the retailers are going to be carrying it and yeah, it's just very on trend with I think something all business owners should be doing because we prioritize so success with not just how well our company is doing, but how much money we're making and are we keeping the lights on. But success in an overall well-rounded way can mean so many different things, the quality of your relationships, your mental health, your mindfulness. And I don't think entrepreneurs focus on all of their burners. I absolutely agree.
1: So I started doing the five-minute journal. Um, I actually just ran out and I realized that it was good because it helps you to create that space, the 20 minutes, five minutes that you need to write things down but you actually never end up reflecting. Like I never found myself going back in the week later and seeing you know, what progress I've made. And I think for me, this kind of journal would be way better because I'll sit down, I'll reflect, and maybe I'll set plans for the next month.
0: So I like this.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just about trying to be well rounded. And it's funny, there was an article that was included in the Human Being Journal where they talk about the five things that people regret when they're like on their deathbed. It was written by someone who specialized in palliative care, where she like talked to a lot of people who were like towards the end of their lifespan and they talked about their regrets. And like the common recurring themes are I wish I didn't work so hard. I wish I didn't lose touch with my friends. I wish I lived a life true to myself and not one that others wanted me to live. That article was really enlightening to me when I I first read it. I really helped me to sort of reimagine what I want my life to look like. I mean, nothing is guaranteed to us. So I don't really want to be just successful in one area of my life. I want to make sure that I'm sort of striving for success in all of the buckets.
1: Absolutely. So looking back, if you could go back to your younger self, what would be your suggestion, lesson, or advice?
2: Just like don't work so hard and don't take yourself so seriously. Nobody else is. And just also remembering that everything will pass. And it sounds so cliche, but now, and I, I still need to do a better job of this, is remembering that the problems that you're worrying about today. If you're still going to be worrying about them in five years, then for sure, go ahead and use your mental energy on that problem. But if this isn't going to be something you're worrying about in five years, like, let it go.
1: Don't let it take your mental space. You're going to be okay.
2: It's going to be okay. I mean, we're all going to be okay. So it's just, you know, being okay with the uncertainty.
1: I absolutely agree with you. Well, on this note, every guest that comes on the podcast is always answering the same questions at the end. A millennial is, a millennial should be, and a millennial is
2: not. So, a millennial is? A millennial is progressive. A millennial should be revolutionary with grassroots ideas. And a millennial isn't a nine to five traditional corporate enterprise.
1: Oh, I love it. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. With this, thank you very much for being on here. Where do listeners find you? Quill, the Human Being Journal. Let us know about everything.
2: I can be found across all social channels. Just google me, you'll find me. I my handle is Zadia @fatima across all channels very active on instagram linkedin twitter like a millennial my website is quillit.io so q-u-i-l-l-i-t.io our channels are quill inc so yeah if you want to find me it won't be hard and looking forward to speaking to each and every one of you and maria thank you so much for having me on your podcast i really appreciate it
1: no thank you thank you thank you thank you for being here and you're welcome anytime have a wonderful week thank you so much